One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Cam Cooley is a Canada Land Editor-in-Chief, CJFE board member, and person who is just generally everywhere all at once. I think you virtually you're in person in the past week and a half. You were in Ottawa, Montreal, and Vancouver somehow. I, I feel, now I'm here. And now you're here opposite like me on Shortcuts. Welcome back to Shortcuts. Today on the show, duly noted and duly noted again. Oops, all duly noted. A Shortcuts duly noted extravaganza. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Karen, where we talk shit about the news. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Jeff O'Connor, Joel Leslie, Aaron Finnerty, Ryan Duncan, Eric Gachowski, Aaron Kennelly, Stephen Young, and Austin. I'm Austin, a two-way radio technician in Winnipeg, and I support Canada Land because it makes me feel smarter than my coworkers. So, as you know, Karen, on this show, we like to duly note things. Today, we will duly note or note duly maybe a half dozen things, give or take. I believe we will start off with something that you would like to note, Julie. Yes, I'd like to duly note that I woke up and was like scrounging around for coffee and looking at stories to cover 
you know, as reporters do around 8.30, 9 a.m. Is this Tuesday morning? Tuesday morning. I, I don't never post on X or Twitter or Twixter or whatever yeah. it's called these days. But I, I, I do ghost around and look for things. And, you know, I came across the weirdest thing. I used to be a Hill reporter, and this is what was weird mm-hmm. about it. It's on Pierre Polyev's Twitter feed. And it's this, first of all, you know, explosive testimony, whistleblower from Trudeau's one billion green slush fund, you know, like kind of headline. But what really caught my eye is it's this video of somebody testifying uh, before committee in parliament and their face is blurred. The SCTC board executives and senior management must be held accountable for their gross mismanagement of taxpayer money and the gross misconduct that's been perpetrated by the toxic senior management team that has victimized countless employees. And the federal government must also be held accountable for its embarrassing lack of oversight that's allowed these problems to persist and its egregious cover-up of the truth that occurred this fall. And I, I, I thought that was really weird because I have never seen that before in my life. And I'm like, why is this face blurred? Like, who goes to, like, if if you're going to have an in-camera committee, then it's in-camera and nobody sees it. But then when you publicly testify, like, what is, is Parliament blurring faces now? Mm -hmm. That, I mean, like, it's just weird. So I, so I clicked through and actually, Pierre Polyev wasn't the first person to post it. He was actually reposting it from one of his Ontario MPs. And then I took a look at that and I decided I'm going to go back and find out which committee this was. Mm-hmm. And so it was actually a committee of uh, Monday night, like the previous night. What it was is it's a story that's actually been in the news for a bit that's just gotten new legs again. And so about last spring, some employees inside the Sustainable Developed Technology Canada's are you, are you aware of this, the green, the green Fund? you know about this? I feel bad that it was not something I had paid any attention to. I guess I, you know, I hear the term as, you know, the conservatives toss around, green slush fund. I sort of automatically roll my eyes. Or not roll my eyes. I'm like, I'm just going to go on to the next thing now. I mean, it legitimately sounds like a very real uh, issue here. Yeah, because, I, I mean, that's exactly the problem. The, the overhype about green slush fund kind of turns you off because it sounds like, I don't know, like just hyper Yeah, hyper-partisan. Yeah, rat- hyper-partisan. Ratcheted it up. I mean, you know, the sort of, I don't know, red meat's such a cliche. It's the sort of like maybe well-seasoned, properly cooked meat. <laughs> this that is, is green throw- meat. <laughs> The yeah. kind that conservatives hate the most of all, the green meat. Um, they will not eat green eggs and ham. But when I tell you it's about the Sustainable Development Technology Canada's scandal, I mean, like, maybe the word scandal will get your attention, but it just sounds so dull. Like, who would pay yeah. attention to this, right? So uh, what it is is that last spring, some employees inside the Sustainable Development mm-hmm. Technology Canada accused the leadership of breaching conflict of interest rules and funding ineligible projects. Then, you know, the government appointed a third party to look into it, and they did find that these complaints had some legs. Mm. And so a report came out. The chief executive officer resigned last month. And now what was happening is a former employee was going to testify Mm. before committee and give more evidence. And that evidence was that this witness says that tens of millions of dollars of public funds were misspent by the foundation and that it still hasn't been settled. So, so fine. So, mm-hmm. so it is a story. But here's what I was thinking. I was like, okay, this committee was at 8 p.m. the night before. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the you, Standing Committee on Industry and Technology or the SKIT or actually it's called the INDU. But yeah. Yeah. An eight o'clock committee meeting is not something that a lot of journalists 
pay attention to normally. So this this would have just slipped by. And I was wondering, did anybody actually cover it mm-hmm. before Polyev tweeted about it? Or did to- Polyev's tweet draw attention to it and restart the news cycle? Now, I can't say for sure, but I did notice that the Globe and Mail had had an article on it that came out soon after the committee. And then the next day, shortly after Polyev's tweet, people started to pick it up. Like there was actually something that had gone on that they missed. Now, was it because of his tweet? I can't say. But I knew about the story because of his tweet. So it's quite possible that that tweet worked to get the news cycle on an issue that the conservatives wanted to be on. So I would just say, well played, Mr. Polyev. Well played. But it's, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an eye-catching tweet because they blurred the face. But the person, it, what it was interesting is the first, you know, the initial question was like, wait, was this guy's face blurred on the original feed? And the answer was no. He was fully visible and clearly anyone who, everyone who he worked with would know who it is. And But what I did find interesting was that the blurring itself I don't think it was unreasonable in the context because in introducing him at committee, the chair of the committee, liberal Joel Lightbound, which is a pretty cool name, noted basically that the person wanted to testify. He didn't say semi-anonymously. That's sort of my interpretation. Basically, he didn't want his name used. He was just listed on the notice paper as witness one. And the chair said, like, well, he doesn't want his name used. And I asked that uh, the members of the committee please respect that. And so even though, I mean, clearly this person testifying, he knew he would obviously know this whistleblower would know that, you know, everyone he's ever met would recognize him there who, who would see this or like anyone he'd work with. Like they didn't know that. So presumably he just didn't want his name to be easily Googleable. That said, I feel like it's in the spirit of that request to keep him sort of semi-anonymous that the blurring actually kind of makes sense. Like if you're going to go out of your way to spread this further... It's, it's feel, it feels not unreasonable. You know who uh, did publish a picture of him? The Globe? CBC. CBC. Yeah, CBC did. They, they published a picture and they actually noted in their story, I don't know if it became an issue or what. It was such a weird thing to put in the story. But they put in that although he was unnamed, like all witnesses show their identity mm-hmm. in committee. So they actually mentioned that in the in the write-up. Our initial impression was that, oh, the conservatives are trying to make it look shadier than it is. They're trying to make it look extra That's what dicey. I thought, too. They were trying to they were trying to juice it up. And I don't know. Maybe and they, they, oh, they kind of are. They are. I just had never seen anybody take a parliamentary feed and kind of doctor it in that way before. And they certainly didn't say, we've changed. We've mm. changed this footage or we have done something with it. You know, what drove me there in the first place to check it out was, has Parliament done something I've never seen before? And uh, the answer was, nope. No, they don't, they don't have a tendency to do that very often. Duly noted. Boop, boop. Did I do that right? Boop, boop. So do you have something to duly note, Jonathan? I think it's your turn. One thing I'd like to duly note is something that was, it's a detail buried in a story by Robin Doolittle and Tom Cardoso at the Globe and Mail as part of their Secret Canada project. By the way, that's a great series. Yeah, and I think, well, actually, we should start by duly noting the Secret Canada Project overall, which I don't think we've talked about on this show. Mm-hmm. It was one of these big globe projects that will likely be nominated for and perhaps win some awards early next year. It began, it's part of my longtime investigative reporter, Robin Doolittle, and slightly less longtime investigative reporter, Tom Cardoso, basically looking at access to information legislation across the country, which, as you probably have heard many times in the show, is just generally 
And to say it's broken implies that it's fallen apart. And while it absolutely has fallen apart and eroded, it's also been, you know, dismantled by design. It is terrible. It is terrible. Yeah, it it is. I I used to be able to get something back if I was specific in like six weeks. Now it's like you just never know. People leave jobs and, you know, switch careers and don't get their stuff back. Yeah, it it does raise the question of like whether it's even, well, it is worth the trouble to still have it. But so there was a very large project. And the the heart of this project, which launched in the spring, is a database that tries to um, well, it's an audit and a database. So the audit, basically, they sent nearly identical requests to basically every federal department agency, every provincial department agency, as well as a bunch of school boards, municipalities, and police forces across the country to sort of try to figure out, like, how how are they doing? What are their statistics? And the other thing is, too, so they could compile one central database of all the requests that they have received or have, that they have fulfilled within, I think it was within... Basically, from the start of 2021 onward, and the, the idea is that it'd be a gradual rolling thing. Because in theory, once a record has been disclosed via an access to an information request, anyone can, should, can then just easily contact the institution again and say, hey, could you just send that to me now? You don't have to go through – it's a much shorter form. You don't have to pay – it's a lot less bullshit and it happens a lot a lot faster. And so you can go – like the federal government, for example, has an open Canada database where they have – list all the tens of thousands that have been requested across the federal government. And it's fun to sometimes type in keywords sometimes, see what mm-hmm. people have asked for and just fill out the form and request it. And you'll get it a few days to weeks later. And it's a fun, it's a fun way to browse information. BC is actually really fun because they actually post all the – requests that have been fulfilled online. It's not oh, as I didn't easy. know that. Yeah, it's not as easy to search, but they're all there. All the gigantic files are there. And the original idea with Secret Canada is not just to have a database of all the requests that pe- in central place for people to say, okay, this is the, the information, but was to actually act as a repository for all the information that's already been ah, released. Ah, okay. Which actually makes way more sense on mm-hmm. a conceptual level. Like, okay, that'd be an incredible resource if you didn't have to just request things. But like, if it were all here, and you could just like just start reading. So, oh it. my god, that it looks spectacular. They they pretty quickly realized that logistically that would be well beyond the scope of what they could do. Yeah, it's they, like creating a whole archive. Like it. Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, no, I mean, just even the thing she mentioned, just even the hosting fees for hosting like hundreds of thousands of gigantic PDFs, which are often like you know 100 megabytes each, uh, would be. I mean, I the globe probably has the money if they really want to, but it's an incredible. You basically have to start like a whole nonprofit foundation. Exactly, like it would be a whole different job, like trying to actually run yeah. a run a news agency and do that. It's like there's yeah. two different things, but what a useful idea! All of which is to go back to my original duly noted point, which is the detail buried in the story that uh, Robin drew extra attention to on Twitter, which is that in the New Brunswick, perhaps not too surprisingly, is one of the worst provinces when it comes to government transparency and just access to information generally. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I, I would have thought that Ontario would be pretty bad, but okay. Oh, no, there are different respects in which each province works. Like, I believe Ontario takes longer to respond to requests. But at least in Ontario, for example, you know, if you appeal to the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario to so have to get them to deliver a ruling on, you know, they shouldn't have denied you this record, the Information and Privacy Commissioner can then force an institution to turn over that record to disclose that. And if the government doesn't like it, they can then take it to court. My understanding is in New Brunswick, though there, there are appeals to an ombudsman, that the ombudsman doesn't actually have the power to force them to do anything. If you want the government to do something, you have to take them to court, which you know not a lot of people are going to do. But the one particular interesting detail was in this list of proposals or recommendations for updates to New Brunswick's information legislation to modify the definition of record in the law 
to limit it to existing physical records mm. and to exclude automated electronic records such as system logs, metadata. Emails. Limit, exactly. Like what do, it's, I went to the report. Uh, everything to, is electronic. Uh, briefing notes are electronic. Like everything is electronic now. Who prints bunk paper anymore? Their current law, the definition of record in it is, you know, as expansive as you would hope it would be, which is to say record means a record information in any form and includes information that is written, photographed, recorded, or stored in any manner on any storage medium or by any means, which is just, I love, you know, beautifully expansive. That's what you want. Oh, including by graphic, electronic, or mechanical means, but does not include software or any mechanism that produces records. But anyway, that's lovely. And so the idea that they would want to take that beautifully expansive definition and narrow it down to physical records even if that existing physical records doesn't literally mean have we printed it already, and there's strong reason to believe it does, that's still concerning, especially in a province that is already not great when yeah. it comes to and, and, and databases are just such a big part of what people are requesting these mm-hmm. days because data journalism, like it just wouldn't. You could say that the system has fallen apart, and it has, but that's only part of the story since it also seems to have been actively dismantled and undermined for deliberate and obvious reasons. I will duly note you, sir. Thank you. Now, Karen, what is something about which Julie you would like to note? Okay, I, I think everybody's seen this. There was a newscast on CTV. CTV Toronto, I think, right? CTV yeah. Toronto. And the broadcast was supposed to be of uh, an annual event. An event, a signature event, is happening here in Toronto later this evening. Our Alison Hurst joins us now with more on what is planned in Allison. It's typically a celebration, but of course this year is very different. They were announcing that Hanukkah was uh, starting and they had their reporter out on scene. And she starts describing that there's this large menorah that goes up every year and they're about to light it. And so it's a celebrating Hanukkah event in Toronto. Yes, there's a lot going on right now. But this is a time where they're hoping that they will all be able to come together. There have been crews coming by, bringing the pieces to begin the setup ahead of tonight's event. It will be a seven or eight foot menorah that is set up here on the The most generic sort of local news noon hour package. Hanukkah event in Toronto is the lower third. It's uh, Mel Lastman Square in North York. Just general shots of like, oh, here's the menorah, here's Mosman Square, here's some tents, here's a sign that says Happy Hanukkah on menorah. And so so you get the Happy Hanukkah sign and she's announcing and then all of a sudden there's this abrupt cut to shots of the war, you know. Or at in, least what's presumably good Gaza. Yeah, presumably Gaza. There's, you know, just rubble in the streets. There's people carrying children who've been wounded, children who are bleeding. And, and this is like just cut into that Hanukkah story. Yeah. And the narration continues for a time and then cuts out. And then eventually, just as abruptly as the other footage comes in, it sort of ends with ends with cutting back to a CEO of the Jewish-Russian Community Center of Ontario saying... I mean, that's really what Hanukkah is about. It's about lighting a candle and darkness goes away. And so every now and then they will put up, as they have with some of our guests, uh, a picture of somebody who has said something that they disagree with. But when they... I would say when they recount what was actually said, it is not always accurate, or at least to my read, it's not always accurate. So I I had some questions about whether or not, and with everything, frankly, online that I see these days, I have questions about whether or not what I'm seeing is real. Um, But as it turned out, this video actually did air the way that... It doesn't appear to have been edited or doctored doctored, in any way, or at least if it has, then CTV should probably have said so by now. Yeah, they did say it was an error, but they didn't say why it happened. We're having some technical difficulties there with Allison's mic. And so it it opened this whole conversation about 
was this somebody gone rogue who had done this on purpose? Or was this simply a mistake that, like, a, a really horrible mistake that, that kind of happened, like the, one of the most unfortunate things that could happen really at this time, you know, in this space? And I, I don't know. They haven't told us. They'll probably never tell us. But one of the things that I had heard is that maybe they grabbed the wrong feed. So this means that they would have been playing from a live location and went to take some cut tape that they had labeled and just kind of feed it in, like stream it in from another source. I don't know how likely that is unless they actually mislabeled it. Because usually, like, things are labeled pretty specifically in newsrooms. So a scene of a war, you know, and people getting hurt in Gaza would have been labeled quite differently from Hanukkah. And so the the other thing that came up is could it have been somebody who'd gone rogue, who'd actually edited this footage in on purpose as part of a statement that they were trying to make? And I guess, like, we don't know. And, you know, CTV hasn't said anything to clarify why it happened. I believe they've apologized for, like, technical error or technical difficulties or technical some, something difficulty. along those lines. I don't think those are the exact terms, but... Terms that offer it, but as much clarity as technical difficulties. We would like to apologize for an error in our noon newscast earlier today. As a result of a technical issue, we mistakenly aired images of the war in the Middle East while reporting on the beginning of Hanukkah. We are deeply sorry that this occurred during our coverage of this important and special event. So that that is, I guess, all we're going to know about it. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. 
The next thing I would like to duly note, or note duly as it was once told is more grammatically correct, is an article on The Maple by Jeremy Appel, who's a recent guest on uh, The Backbench, also been on Shortcuts. Headline, Post Media Called Out for Publishing Israeli Propaganda as News. I saw this. Yeah. Tell me. Tell me about it. It's reporting on a complaint or something that was first noticed by Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East and their Media Accountability Project. It's not the, the catchiest name. It's like a CJPME MAP is sort of meant to be sort of the more, I guess, you say the Palestinian sympathetic counterpart to what Honest Reporting Canada mm, does. Okay. They started up or restarted up earlier this year and seemingly are run on a relative shoestring. But they seemingly picked up on and filed complaints with, that with the News Media Council about the fact that post-media papers in just the past couple months have begun relying on a wire service called the Jewish News Syndicate, which is, let's just say with wire services traditionally are very, I mean, nothing, obviously nothing, in media or in the world, or it is, is without bias or perspective. Everything has a bias or something of some sort. But traditionally, wire services are try to make themselves to be as neutral as they can. The idea being, you know, that they are published. You know, the, the copy from wire services is included in a wide range of contexts and a wide range of publications, adding to all kinds of articles. And so, it should be the most versatile and adaptable copy possible. So yeah, exactly, it's like the most plain vanilla copy that you can get. Yes, and that's that's certainly what the Canadian Press aims for. Certainly, what Associated Press and Reuters aim for. And even traditionally, uh, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency is a relatively is a long running since you know over a century old. Jewish news service that tries to sort of go down the middle. But the Jewish News Syndicate was basically founded a little over a decade ago as an explicitly pro-Israel and hawkish and implicitly, but not even that implicit, but also basically a right-wing alternative to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. And is that generally known? And like, they're not trying to be news or are they are they trying to be news? I think they're trying to be news. I mean, the it's a good question. So the the article characterizes it as propaganda, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between propaganda and journalism that doesn't attempt to be balanced. Because I also feel like inherently journalism, as long as it's fair, doesn't have to balance any arguments of what's fair or not. I think the thing is here that the National Post, there's not as far as I can tell, there's nothing that is inconsistent with what the National Post already has long published in pretty much all of its opinion columns on especially on the subject of Israel. It's had a point it's of view. It's very consistent with that. What I think is different is that the National Post, at least in the news reporting, and goodness knows most of their international news, basically all the international news reporting comes from wire services, that tends to be more straightforward. So now the National Post is sort of the, going with the news reporting from a wire service that is as basically is as skewed, I mean, it's frankly deliberately and directly as skewed as it's reporting. Jewish News Syndicate is something I hadn't really actually heard of until a couple months ago. And as CJPME and uh, the Maple characterize it, they characterize it as propaganda. And I'm not, I don't, not going to say that's right or wrong. I think it's it's not. It's not a conventional news service, but I do it, think it's it, not AP like the American press. Yes. It's not CP the Canadian press. It's not. It doesn't have the balance that we would expect from those kind of wire services. It is different. That's what you're saying. Yes, I think instructively, it's useful to see like, okay, who are the people behind it? What kinds of things does it publish? And Jeremy Appel has helpfully gone in and looked at how their leads of news stories and their headlines have differed from those of like the Associated Press and Reuters on specific stories. But you can also just look at. I mean. 
I was thinking that uh, in 2015, The Forward, which is an American Jewish publication, discovered that, oh, that is actually their biggest funder is Sheldon Adelson, who, or at least at the time, was Sheldon Adelson, who was a major Republican donor, who I think, yeah, he was like parodied on Veep and the character played by Jonathan Hatery. But I mean, even then, like the editor in chief of Jewish News Syndicate is this guy, Jonathan S. Tobin, who is also a senior contributor to The Federalist, which is a right wing, somewhat characterized as far right. American politics website that has published like 2020 election denial stuff, a lot of controversial stuff like that. And the stuff he writes for them, the columns are things like legalization of polygamy was always the logical consequence of Obergefell. Uh, Obergefell being the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage, uh, meaning that basically, as the deck says, if marriage is possible between any two individuals, then why not three, four, or any number of consenting adults, regardless of their oh, sex? Oh, one of those arguments. One of those arguments. And that was just like, that was just this past May. Or Liz Cheney epitomizes never-Trumpers' betrayal of our nation. Like the rest of the never-Trumpers, Representative Liz Cheney's campaigns, but destroying the GOP, not saving it. Or, or the past summer, um, how embracing DEI... So that's to say diversity, equity, inclusion, how embracing DEI is causing classical music to D-I-E. <laughs> it's, I, I, I'm just, okay, um, I'm not going to comment on whether or not, like, I haven't read the article, but that was, that was actually a pretty funny headline. <laughs> yeah, I, I was debating with myself how I, how I would read that out if I would say D-I-E or just say emphasize the word die and then say they die, spelled, yeah, die. spelled in all caps. <laughs> so, I mean... There's a very clear, I mean, the editor-in-chief is very clear, unabashedly Republican Mm -hmm. Trump supporter, which does not in and of itself disqualify someone from being an editor of a thing. And that there are many worse people who are editors of things. And goodness knows that the founder and the original publisher of the National Post shares many of those views, albeit as a at least uses funny, you know, entertainingly long words to write about them. But I do think it is notable that something that has, at the very least, I would say, hard right sympathies is now, just in the past couple months, providing regular copy to not just the National Post, but all the seemingly all or most of the broadsheets across the post media chain. That is incredible. And like one of the things about like, I think, bias and point of view is that like there's been this real movement to redefine or at least move away from terms like objectivity yes. because we we recognize that and it, we've always recognized this like back when I was in J school like a million years ago you know people said objectivity doesn't like a person can't be objective and and that's true uh, there's views don't come from nowhere views everybody has a point of view but the most you can do is kind of be fair and balanced and remove yourself if your bias is too strong to do that or declare any bias that you might have so people understand where you're coming from. And I, I guess one of the problems is that this is just kind of slipping into the copy yeah, I would without assume really most, that consideration. I would assume most people, most readers would not know what Jewish News Syndicate is. They would not be familiar. They'd probably assume it's akin to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency if they've given any thought to that at all. But I, I did yeah. not know. I Until you explained the difference, I would not have known the difference. And then, and then the complaint's gone to the News Media Council. Yeah. So, so National Post is a member of News Media Council, as I believe are all the I believe all the papers in the Post Media chain are. Yeah, they are. The, the Sun papers originally weren't, but uh, when they were bought by the Post, then they all became members. So now, if you complain to the News Media Council, they will look into it. And so, so it usually takes about uh, six months to a year for them to get around to this. I understand that they have had more complaints these days than normal. 
So I guess one to watch and duly oh, yeah. noted. Well, what else would you like to note, Julie, today? I just wanted to, because this was one of those little stories that might get missed, and I just had a lot of affection for it. Ottawa Eyes changed border rules for Indigenous communities. It is an injustice that this continues to divide our people. So I think a lot of people don't realize this, but Indigenous people don't recognize a border. To us, Canada, the United States, like it's all Turtle Island. And we roamed freely across this fictitious mm. border or this man-made border for years. And our, our territories are sometimes on both sides of the border. And even when we were moved on to reserves, the border was drawn through some reserves. And so there are Indigenous people in this country, First Nations people, Métis people, that every time they go home or go to work have to pass through customs. Aquasosne is one that I've been to where you go over the bridge and you have to pass through customs to actually go into the community. And a portion of the community is Ontario, a portion of the community is in Quebec, and a portion of the community is in the U.S. And so, I mean, this is like going back to the Jay Treaty. So it goes back to 1794. When they signed that treaty, First Nations people, Métis people, and presumably Inuit people were guaranteed that we would be able to cross the border freely. The thing is, Canada's never recognized it. So I can technically go down to the States if I can get my chief to write a letter saying that I have 50% blood quantum, which, depending how you add it up, I, I'm either 25 or 50. It just depends how you're counting. Hmm. <laughs> because blood quantum is not a real thing. Um, yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, I mean, that sounds, it sounds inherently degrading. <laughs> it would be a whole other shortcuts if I had to, if I had to explain how blood quantum gets added. But uh, if I could get my chief to write a note, I can go down to the U.S. and I can actually get a U.S. citizenship because the U.S. recognizes it. But Canada doesn't. And so it's always that point where you're coming back into Canada or for American Indians, if, if you're born on the American side, and you need to come into Canada every day for work or, or do these things that you kind of get stopped and you um, mm. <laughs> they don't recognize it. Wow. So I, I just thought, like, huh. wow, this is like a problem that goes back to 1794 and we're finally getting around to dealing with it. And there's finally an article in the newspaper around it. So reconciliation, go. Well, I mean, the problem of the you know conquest of America goes back goes back even further than 1794 and we're also finally getting around to talking about it. Finally around to talking about it. Yeah. To chatting about that that little problem that we hadn't gotten around to since 1794. Duly noted. It would be and possibly will be the biggest most significant sports contract in the history of this country by far. Nothing could get baseball fans amped up in December like rampant rumors about the hottest player on the planet making his way here. Maybe. It could be, Melissa, the biggest sports story to ever touch down in Toronto, if it's true. Reaction continues to pour in today after the Blue Jays and Toronto sports fans lost out on signing baseball phenom Shohei Otani. Toronto loses out in the Shohei Ohani sweepstakes. After days of speculation, the generational Japanese baseball player chooses to stay in L.A. and picks the Dodgers over the Blue Jays. As the host and producer of Commons, Archie Mann, told us in, for this past week's Candlelight Weekly Newsletter, all I care about this week, this week being last week, all I care about this week is Shohei Otani. If the Jays sign Shohei, it'll be the happiest day of my life. And if they don't, I will never recover. So there's a lot riding on this. Wow, that's impassioned, and I understand nothing. This is about 
space. That's my ball. understanding. I, like I, this is that, that's the one with a, a bat and a ball, and you hit it and it, you run. But it's not the only one with a bat and a ball. And you hit it and you run. <sighs> that's my. I, that's also my understanding. <laughs> we are so not sports people. Okay, yeah, explain not, this I, one I, to that's me. That's the thing. Is I feel like I'm realizing this. So I, I I know I'm not a sports person. Emphatically, not a sports person. But I find through this story that's happened in the past, that happened last week, I find myself getting to a point where I realize, like, I don't care about sports, but I'm actually kind of happy for the people that do in a non, especially in a non-toxic way. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. I, I, but I, like, I, this story made me really happy because... It made other people happy. It, it made it, energy. exactly. With the obvious caveat that I'm not a sports person. Basically, yeah, I'd never heard of Shohei Otani until I heard about him on The National. I feel like a, a very old person to be saying, I didn't hear about this thing. Japanese free agent phenom Shohei Otani is in serious talks to leave the Los Angeles Angels after six seasons. Everything about this is going to be embarrassing to people who know what they're talking about. He's one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived. He played for the Angels and he was looking for, <laughs> he was, his contract was up and he was looking for a new team. And it was expected that he would either end up at the L.A. Dodgers, basically going from the bad L.A. team to the good L.A. team, or he would come to Toronto and play for the Rogers media-owned Toronto Blue Jays. There was, I mean, a lot of hype and speculation is putting it mildly. It was a kind of like online delirium that <laughs> about something that doesn't really matter that kind of recalled, maybe the reason I have so much affection for it is it kind of recalled like the best moments of like, the early mid social web, maybe twenty eleven to twenty like the, the fourteen or so. Taylor Swift of baseball, can we say that? <laughs> uh, uh, no, I mean Beyonce, Beyonce of baseball. Yeah, I mean in terms of like people. Who, well, I actually don't know what the comparison would be. Maybe the Beatles. People wow. Are, yeah, I mean I don't really know. That's what seems to be people talking about. Like, there's no one who is this who's ever been this good at multiple things. Apparently, he's like one of the greatest hitters of all time and one of the greatest pitchers of all time, which apparently is not really or almost has never happened before. But beyond that, what I thought was Fun and interesting. Basically, I mean, the way the rumors got out of control, there was a tweet, a widely picked up tweet from a baseball reporter that basically that he was even, in fact, en route to Toronto on Friday, which led people to try to figure out how might that happen. And so there was a particular private plane that was traveling from the Los Angeles area to Toronto that people were tracking moment by moment via, you know, flight aware and the similar sites as it basically crossed from California to Ontario, crossed the border and touched down at the uh, sort of this, this celebrity terminal at Pearson Airport. There's a like a secret third terminal where so we're just watching this, the, the, this plane go. Like, yeah, this, and people yeah. were like, and the people were like putting out like, oh shit, there's you know, sources say there's this other baseball, this other Blue Jay who's also a Japanese player made a big reservation at a restaurant tonight, and like ah, oh, all of these things. And Rogers was not doing anything to shut down the rumors. For all we know, they may have been planting them. His interest in Toronto started when he paid a visit to their Blue Jays training camp and. Florida. People were just like really excited about this plane and always reporters waiting on the tarmac or at least as close as I guess they're allowed to get to the tarmac to receive this plane. The City News chopper was above Pearson Airport earlier today around 430. Captured this private jet. It's hard to see. Private jet pulling in to the private terminal. Off walked a lone individual. Speculation was rife that it may have been a one Shohei Otani. And it just turned out it was like some of the one of the guys from Dragon's Den. (laughs) 
which is like I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. I don't even. It's Robert Herjavec, or I think it's her, but anyway, I, that's I, so disappointing. But imagine I know. Being, imagine being him. Like you're, you get off the plane yes. and there's like this crowd of people, and all you see is this like massive disappointment. You walk off and you're like, look at all these people, and you just watch their spirits die in front of you. Well, no, I think they're probably still waiting to see if Shohei Tani is also uh, going to get off, and he, he doesn't. And just yeah, and just the dragons. It's like a dragons and Shark Tank guy. So I guess he's famous, but just like the perfect like. Sea level Canadian celebrity <laughs> that just took the most, most, I guess, not even like Kevin O'Leary, which would be, I guess, funnier in a different way, but it's like something like imagine Kevin O'Leary, but more boring. <laughs> and I just, I just, the, that sense of deflation, like just, it's just what a beautiful, what a beautiful punchline to that was. As it turns out, Otani had never left Los Angeles. He just switched from one team to the next. And I will do everything in my power to help Archie recover. Oh, poor Archie. Poor Archie. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks for joining me again, Karen. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always so fun. We are on X at CanadaLand. Uh, you can email me at Jonathan at CanadaLand.com and find me on Blue Sky at, I don't know how those things, Goldsby, whatever, what have you. Where can people find you, Karen? Um, I barely am on X. Um, I I do kind of surf there, but I am totally moving to Blue Sky. Everybody move to Blue Sky. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, why, why not? I also co-host Wag the Dog. We'll have a new episode uh, next week. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Jofo, and our editor-in-chief is you, Karen. Wee! <laughs> theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canadaland merch, invites, and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now, click the link in your show notes, or go to canadaland.com join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.